0: community month preparation especially with the breakfast portion please do reach out to our deacon Esther okay so that's our last announcement for today and we're going to turn to the word of God the word of God comes to us from Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 4 to 14 Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 4 to 14 this is the word of God before this Eliasib The priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed by the Levites for musicians, gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of our Xerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elias had, do, had, had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and that I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the proportions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. All that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had got back uh, to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is this the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I had put Shemaliah, the priest of Zadok, the scribe, and Levite, padiah in charge of the storerooms and made hanan the son of zakor son of mataniah their assistant because they were considered trustworthy they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow levites remember me for this my god and do not blot out what i have so faithfully done for the house of my god and its services this is the word of god today we'll be finishing out the nehemiah series and pastor john will be sharing the word
1: Amen. Good to see you, New Mercy. I see a lot of new faces, a lot of old faces returning. It's been great to worship face-to-face back at home. Uh, welcome. I know some of you, it's, I haven't seen you for a while and you're coming back with babies. Some of your babies are in youth group now. Um, everyone's just getting bigger and older. Um, here at New Mercy, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. And it's a very short book in the Old Testament. And today we are ending the book here in chapter 13, right? Throughout the book of Nehemiah, the main theme that we've been looking at is rebuilding. This idea of rebuilding. As Nehemiah and the Israelites are rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city walls, and rebuilding in many ways their own spiritual, theological, emotional, and psychological health of who they are as they question their identity and their relationship with the Lord. So Nehemiah, uh, for those of you who missed, right, the Jews have been exiled during the Babylonian Empire. And this man named Nehemiah, who's been the cupbearer, one who eats the food before the king eats to make sure that the food is safe, right, has won the trust of the king and therefore asks him, may I go back to my hometown Jerusalem because I know that my people are very depressed and sad that during our exile we have been neglecting our temple and our city because everything's been ruined. So he gets the thumbs up from the king. He goes back and this is a story of him gathering his own people Helping them to see the vision of recreating the walls of Jerusalem and therefore rebuilding the temple. And in the process, once again, rebuilding their faith and their relationship with God. So hopefully you've been following along. If you haven't, it's okay. I hope you can go back and read this fun story. And now we finally get to chapter 13 at the end as a follow-up of chapter 10, 11, and 12, when Israelites have gathered together, the walls up, the city's built again, they are celebrating, they are happy, they are excited, they're thankful, and they give God all the glory and honor, and that's where Pastor Lisa left off last week. But today, we end in chapter 13, and the ending is not what we expect, right? There are a lot of books in the scripture where the ending is nice, where it, it is happily ever after. But today, unfortunately for all of us, or perhaps fortunately, the story is very raw and it's real and it does not wrap up nicely. So let's dive right into chapter 13 as we end this book and let's hear from the Lord. So let us pray one more time as we dive in. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you're a God who continually chases after us. We thank you for this book of Nehemiah as we wrap up here in chapter 13. May you remind us why we truly celebrate, why we keep this day holy, why we come together as one family and worship you and read your word and pray towards you. Lord, be with us. May your spirit move our hearts that we may have open ears, open eyes, open hearts to receive who you are and what you want to say today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a man was uh, looking for a parking space in a parking lot. I imagine a parking lot kind of like GSP Mall where oftentimes you go there even during weekday and it is just packed. This man could not find his parking spot. He roams around for 20 minutes and out of frustration, although he hasn't gone back to church for a long time, he kind of has a whisper prayer, right? One of those whisper prayers where you just kind of think it in your mind, like, God, it's so frustrating. If you give me a parking spot, I will go back to church and I will ask for forgiveness for all the things I've done wrong. And as he is finalizing his thought, an empty parking spot opens up and he goes, never mind, God, I found one, right? And he drives right in, right? Now, for me, that joke kind of illustrates how we live on a daily basis, We oftentimes make these empty promises before the Lord because we need something. We want something, right? I want an A, right? I didn't study all week. I didn't study all week. Don't tell your parents. But I go to the test, and I'm like, God, two seconds before I have to write my name down onto the test paper, I'm like, God, please let me ace this test, right? We go throughout our lives asking God for this or that new job a better career finding a spouse finding a boyfriend girlfriend and you name things of this world that we want and when we need it we come before the god and we say god i want to make you a promise if you give me this then i will give you this we make these deals with the lord and oftentimes they come up short this is also true in relationships right uh I mean, I don't know about you. I keep all my promises in my house, but I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding, okay, right? Like, you make all these promises. Honey, don't worry. I got the dishes, right? It's not done until two days later, <laughs> right? Right? Kids, don't worry. I will play with you, but give me like three and a half hours until I'm done checking my fantasy football teams, and I'm, then I'll come play with you. And then three and a half hours later, you're doing something else, right? Now, I'm talking about very light promises that are broken in our life, but let's be honest, right? In our relationship, in our lives, we also make very big mistakes. We make big promises. In fact, we make promises that we don't keep over and over and over again. And when that happens... Whatever relationships you want to talk about, refer to, will break down slowly, one by one. Why? Because the trust between two people, trust between parties of people are being broken. Here in Nehemiah 13, this is exactly what's happening. They've made promises to God. Only a chapter or two before Chapter 10, we talked about their celebration, right? They are, you know, clanging the cymbals, they're eating, they're feasting, they're praying, and they're saying, God, thank you. 11 and 12, Pastor Lisa spoke on this. They are asking for repentance. They're, God, we're so sorry for all the mistakes that we've made. And then only a chapter later in 13, as we end the book, As we expect, as readers, like, this is going to be nice. It's going to be end of celebration. They're going to all high-five each other, and they're going to create another temple somewhere else. But it doesn't happen. In fact, they take five, six, ten steps back, and they actually are full of empty promises. They don't keep the promises that they very much make, only a few chapters before to the Lord. And we find out in this final chapter of Nehemiah, That all these promises are actually being broken and they're going back to the way they were before the temple was restored. The psychology behind broken promises is this if you're like most people, you make commitments to others all the time. But how often do you actually keep these promises? In fact, this will be a fun exercise that I want to challenge our church with. Take a journal, right? (laughs) And throughout just this week, just one week, write down all the small and big promises that you make at work, at home, with kids, friends. And then try to evaluate yourself and think, how many of these promises do I actually keep? How many do I actually push back? And how many do we actually not come through with? When we don't keep a promise to someone over and over again, it actually communicates to the other person that I don't really value who you are. I don't really value who you are. But if you keep breaking those promises over and over again, what we actually learn about ourselves is that we are not valuing who we are. Because I am on an unconscious, subconscious level constantly telling myself as I break the promises that my words don't really matter that much. So what happens? More likely than not, as you break these promises to other people, other people will not trust you, and you yourself will trust yourself less and less. This is exactly what's happening here in chapter 13. As Nehemiah and the Israelites, together as a whole, they find out at this juncture that they have broken so many promises that they have made to the Lord. So if I can put it this way, they are beginning to beginning to uh, devalue who they are as people of faith. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on in the background, right? The Israelites have formed this temple in the city. They're excited. They're celebrating. They're giving thanks. And Nehemiah, at this point, is called back to the capital's a city within Babylonian Empire called Susa, the king calls him back. We don't know exactly why at this point, but he goes back after about 12 years of reigning as a governor over Jerusalem, right? As he creates the temple and the city, he gets called back, so he goes back. And while he's gone, all these promises get broken. And 13, onset of 13 is when Nehemiah comes back, Back to the city and finds out, what are you guys doing? Because everything has fallen apart again. The walls are physically there. The city is still there. The temple is physically there. But inside he sees the hearts and the lives of the very people that he ministered to and led are falling apart. Nehemiah is not young at this point. He's not this fiery 20, 30-year-old, right? he came back to Jerusalem with the permission of the king to rebuild the city when he was around 40. So he rules for 12 years. He goes back to Susa, and we don't know exactly, but uh, scholars argue it's probably within about 7 to 10 years where he's away, and he just comes back. So he's now in his mid to late 60s. Imagine he's coming back, right? I, like, imagine him coming in, like, with the beard, he's turning white, and he's trying, he expects, as he enters into the city that he rebuilt, proud man of God. Man, I can't wait till I see my brothers and sisters in Christ. He comes, and he finds the exact opposite of what he expected. People are sinning. They are going against the promises that they made. And what we find out is that Nehemiah is deeply, deeply discouraged. Here are the details of the promise that the Israelites have been broken. Only two chapters before, these are the six promises that Israelites make. One about family, not to intermarry with enemies, those who despise God and church. They made a covenant with God. We'll get more into that a little bit later. Two. They promised to God that we will keep our Sabbath and keep it holy by abstaining from all commercial activity. Meaning, we will no longer work on this day and sell and buy because it takes away the focus of putting the emphasis on God and worship. Three. They promised that they will give the temple tax that is annually obligated to keep the temple going. Fourth. They make a promise to God that there will be additional provision for the temple that they will give the wood and incense and burnt offerings so that the temple will run and they will give their first fruits of their crops, as Pastor Lisa spoke about last week. Fifth, they make promises to God that they will dedicate their firstborns. That does not mean every family came and said, God, my firstborn, right, I will make him or her go in to become a priest or Levite, no. But it shows, it symbolizes that everything first, everything first that I bear will be yours because it came from you, God. Right? That's the promise that these people have made to God. And last but not least, they promise to give tithe, being faithful to God, giving 10% so that temple servants and services will continue and they will use what they collected through tithes To help those who are oppressed, who are marginalized around them. Nehemiah comes back in his late 60s, and all these six areas of promises were neglected. And he is angry. (laughs) He doesn't come in thinking, This is so sad, what happened? And he gives up. No, he wants to fight. (laughs) He is angry. So he comes in and he starts screaming and yelling. And the first person that I imagine that he grabs by the neck and shakes him, now this is not in the scripture, but that's just my imagination, is this high priest named Eliashib. Because Eliashib was the high priest now who was in charge of taking care of the temple and his people. Now, Eliashib, we know through the chapters in Nehemiah, that while Nehemiah was governing there, he was working with this high priest. So he has a relationship with him. He entrusts Eliashib to take care of the temple and his people, and he leaves, and he comes back. He finds out Eliashib is the very much the person at the lead of making all these broken promises. He, in fact, as a horrible, horrendous leader, is misguiding and misleading the entire Israelites. So here are the people of Israelites constantly making mistakes, and at the helm of that group is this high priest named Eliashib. So imagine, Nehemiah is angry, and he goes right to this high priest, and he finds out all the wrong, all the mistake that this Eliashib the high priest is making. Here are a couple that he's making the mistakes that he's been made. It says in today's scripture that Eliashib, the high priest, gave Tobiah a room in the temple. Right? That doesn't seem like much. Now you're thinking like, like let's get creative here. Maybe Eliashib finds Tobiah. He's poor. He's the marginalized. He's not. We know that from previous chapter that Tobiah is not an Israelite. Maybe he's in need. So he. Empties a room in the temple and allows Tobiah to live there. Not true. Tobiah is a wealthy man. He's not a Jew, but he has a Jewish name. In fact, Tobiah is uh, portrayed in history and in the scripture as a man who was hungry for power and authority. He's conniving, he's perhaps savvy. Because he wants to move up the ranks. Therefore, Tobiah, although he has a Jewish name, he is not a Jew, but an Ammonite, a mortal enemy of the Israelites. We know that he also marries one of the head leaders within the city in order to move up the ranks. Not even that, Tobiah also married his daughter, one of his daughters, into another leader's son, And through marriages and intermarriages, Tobiah is being conniving because he wants to take over the Israelites and have more authority and more wealth that he is gaining for himself and his people who are not God-fearing but rather God-hating. Remember, when we read chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 in Nehemiah, we find that Tobiah and the Ammonite is criticizing and critiquing Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the temple and the city. He is very, in fact, of the people and of the group that laughs at Nehemiah for doing such a thing. Not only that, we know that this high priest is not giving Tobiah just a room because Tobiah is in need. Eliashib himself marries one of his um, grandkids, into the household of Tobiah. You see what's going on here? And slowly, we'll talk a little bit more about why these intermarriages become a bigger issue than we might think. Is that through these relationships, Tobiah has a stronghold in the actual physical house of God. So much so that Elisha, in his bias, thought, Right? Because now they're family. Now they can gain off of each other. Now they can look at how much comes into the temple, how much tax is collected in the city. And while Nehemiah is gone, now they can do some shady business in order to benefit for themselves. That's what's going on. So Elisha, the high priest, creates a room. How? In the temple? He takes all the, 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 the offering that is collected, that is to be used to feed the very people who work at the church and the very food that is supposed to be used to feed the marginalized and the poor and who are needy outside of the temple, he takes all of that out and instead he says, hey, Tobiah, I got a great place for you, right? In this great location and temple. You can live here free, free of charge. No rent, you just live here. And while you live here, imagine what would have happened. Elisha, Tobiah, other folks who are uh, haters of Israelites and haters of God, people who detest and oppress them, are gathering together (laughs) and making the very important decision for all the people within Jerusalem. See why Nehemiah is so angry? He's not even just angry. He's actually really pissed. He's so angry That as he comes into the city, he finds out all these information and he wants to do something to get rid of all the sin and mistakes that are being made. Let me talk a little bit about why it was such a big deal to marry foreigners or enemies of the Jews during this time. One, there was a religious theological problem and this is why Nehemiah is mad. Remember, Nehemiah is not mad just because Two people of different ethnic uh, racial backgrounds got together and married. That's not why he's angry. The reason why he's really angry is because God did not want Israelite accepting the foreigners in their midst because it started to corrupt their theological belief and their full dedication to the Lord because these are not just foreigners. These are foreigners who oppose Israelites in worshiping god these are the foreigners who worshiped other gods gods of other nations and therefore this is exactly why god gave commandments not to intermarry and that is not because of racial ethnic reasons but because really at the core a religious theological one because by doing so what happened was the israelites were beginning to trust in other gods they started to not focus on God's word. They started to not follow God's laws, right? How, how can I prove that? Pastor Lisa touched upon this last week. There are exceptions to this rule, which shows us that it was not just about ethnic racial identity mixing that they were worried about, right? When we look at Old Testament, there are exceptions to the rule, such as a repentant Moabite. Moabites were another enemy group, Israelites. What? But... Uh, uh, example of a Moabite like Ruth were accepted into the Israelite family because why she had a repentant heart and accepted and received God as her Savior right therefore not only does Ruth become part of God's people actually Ruth becomes a, a ancestor of King David and Jesus you see what I'm saying so there are exceptions like this. So we can't say, oh, they, Israelites just didn't want to marry people outside. No. The law stated you don't intermarry because these people are going to have a very strong influence on you theologically to rip you away from God and your relationship with the Lord. Secondly, there were pro- practical problems in these intermarriages because there were effects of those around us and, and, and in the sense that we lose the culture and the language. Remember, they don't have computers. They don't have written Bibles that they all read together, right? What's happening is many times verbally they're transferring on to the next generation, to next generation and on about who God is and who God's people are and how we are to live and obey God's laws. So once you started intermarrying what was happening, was not were you being torn apart towards other gods, what was happening was the language and the culture was being lost. And in a practical level, uh, their, their children could no longer read the law of God, law of Moses. They could no longer read the scripture. They could no longer understand and listen to and comprehend what God wants of his people. So with these issues, what we learn is we have to value who we surround ourselves with. The community in which you plug yourself in actually matters. The very people that you become very close with do matter in the sense that the people, if they matter that much to you, they're going to have influence over your lives. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not saying as Christians we cannot become uh, friends with non Christians or such, that we can't become friends with people outside of church or this church. No, in fact, we're supposed to do the exact opposite. We're supposed to go out and speak and relate and befriend people, those who are outside of the church who don't know God. But if there are people groups, if there are folks who are not God fearing and they actually despise God, this is displeased and angry with the church, I think the implication here is that we have to be careful. Okay, so hopefully I made that point. So what is Nehemiah's response? His response is what we call holy anger, right? What is holy anger? It is a unique, special anger that in God's eyes we are allowed to have Because God wants righteousness. God wants what's right in his eyes. And we're not following it. And we keep breaking these promises. Then in response, there is such thing as righteous anger. Holy anger. So what does he do? It says in the scripture that we read, this is the fun part, right? Nehemiah comes in. This is what's real about Nehemiah. He doesn't come in. He says, what? I'm so upset. All right. What should we do? Let's strategize. No. He's so angry that he goes straight to Eliashib, right? He finds out where Tobiah's room is, and he, what, we just read it, right? He goes into that room, he grabs everything that is owned by Tobiah, and he throws it out to the front lawn of the temple. When I read this, there's a part of me that's like, that's freaking awesome, right? Like, you just do it, right? Nehemiah's got some guts. Now, he's got power and authority, too. Like, no one's gonna come mess with him, but he does this, and while I'm reading this, right, I'm preparing this message I'm like I know it sounds weird to be saying like you're inspired by this holy anger but there's like part of you like this is wrong he's doing what's right and then I was sharing with my wife Hannah I was just like can you believe this who would do such a thing and she was just like oh my dad's done this to us and I'm like what do you mean well if you know my wife Hannah she's a, a clean freak right I think the most of the reason number one reason why our kids get into trouble in our houses (laughs) because they don't clean after themselves and like sometimes i do have to personally i know she's in there but sometimes i do have to walk on eggshells a little bit i'm like okay what's on the floor today as i come in right because she so i just assume that her and her older sister grew up very cleanly but i found that this week that it it was actually exact opposite right that her father my father-in-law one time was so upset that these two sisters were so dirty and so messy that he's given them multiple warnings to clean up your room, clean up your room, clean up your room, and they didn't. So one day they came back from school and all their things, all their clothes, shoes, everything that they owned in their room was out in the front line. Now for those of you who don't know my father-in-law, you're like, what is wrong with this man? But I get him. he's just a unique guy. (laughs) He's a a special guy. And I'm like, whoa, you've experienced this? This is crazy, right? But imagine the wrath of a biological father who is angry at you because you didn't clean up after yourself. And then here's Nehemiah, like 50, 60, 70, 100 steps to this side where he sees that you are not just offending me. You have offended our God. You're the high priest, Elisha, and you make all these side deals with our enemies and you let Tobiah come into the temple? And you use all that is gathered within the church to help those who are in need and rather you gain it for yourself and you give it back to the enemies of the Israelites? He is mad, not because he himself is personally offended. He is, but more so. He is so angry because he is able to see from God's perspective how angry God would be to see these acts of sin that is taking place not among anyone from the high priest and on down and among all the leaders, political leaders who are ruling over the city. So Nehemiah responds with this holy anger and He teaches us in his response two things that we can practically, hopefully, take away. One is that in order to deal with our spiritual permissiveness, right, spiritual permissiveness, what that means is being uh, unwise and, and tolerating, compromising in ways that are negative, right, being unfaithful. In order for us to deal with our spiritual permissiveness, right, we must be aware of our problem areas. You have to first be aware. It's not like Nehemiah all of a sudden just came and was like, oh, they're breaking the laws. This is how I should respond, right? He felt the very conviction and the emotion that I think our God would have felt. How is he able to do that? Because he is a man who is aware of himself. And he is very used to looking at his own actions and thoughts and feelings and checking it against what God thinks, what God feels, what God sees. When you are aware of uh, your own life, in a biblical term, what we're saying is you are Aware of who you are and what you're doing, and you can check that with what God thinks of what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. When you're truly aware, you are honest with yourself, and you're honest before the Lord, and that's who Nehemiah is. In order for us to fight against our spiritual permissiveness, right, to just compromise constantly and just give away slowly, one by one, the very things that are important, in our lives, because God wants us to keep those things. We have to be aware of ourselves. I challenge you at the beginning portion of this message, this idea of writing down your promises that you make, right? But what if we were to write down the promises that we make before God, and we were to keep a journal for the rest of our lives how many of these promises that we keep? God, I promise to be a loving, gracious mother. I promise to be a loving, gracious husband and father. I promise to be, I will be studious and give it all of who I am in in my schoolwork. I will be a generous, loving, gracious friend. I will bite my tongue and be wise with the words that I say when I'm offended at work. I will be patient. I will be more loving. I will be more kind. I will be more generous to the people who are in need around me. All these promises that we make to God, not even to each other. If we kept a journal of such, I wonder how many of us would actually receive a high rank or high grade in God's perspective. But Lord, it's so gracious that good news here is that God doesn't grace grade us that way but what's important is that we keep a journal of such maybe not a physical journal but at least mentally being aware of oneself so that when I do something and something tugs in my heart I don't think that was the right thing to do I think I offended somebody I think I offended this person by saying this or doing something. I think I've hurt my children by doing this or saying this. I think I've hurt my spouse. I think I've hurt my friend. I think I've hurt my church. Hopefully, you can pause and like Nehemiah, you can be self-aware enough then to check what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling with what God wants. Because look, it's purely up to you and me. If it is purely up to just human beings to determine what is right from the wrong, we can argue all day who is right and who is wrong because it's all subjective. But as Christians, what we abide by is the scripture and what God teaches us. How to love, how to be kind, how to be gracious. What does that mean? Then in order to be self-aware, we can't just check within ourselves and how other people view us, whether I did right or wrong. I have to view then with what God sees and how God would view what I'm doing, what I'm feeling. So that kind of self-awareness is very necessary. If you look at it, Nehemiah's life, especially here only in chapter 13, Nehemiah honestly evaluates the situation. And it evaluates what he is doing, what he's feeling with the Lord. In verse 7, it says, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. So it's not like he just came and he just reacted, right? He actually found out and researched what's been going on the 7 to 10 years that he was away, right? It says in verse 10, it says that he discovered the fact that the Levites had not received the tithes. He had trustworthy people there that we can come back and ask, hey, what has been going on? And he discovers all, discovers all the wrongs that's been happening. In verse 15, he says, he saw the violation of the Sabbath. In 23, he also saw that the Jews had been marrying foreign women. He was objur- observing what was happening. He was fully aware of who he was and he checked it with what God would want. And when he did so, he realized that there's a huge discrepancy between what the Jews were doing And what God wants. Hence, the holy anger and frustration. Secondly, not only do we need to be aware of our problem areas, right? And check it with the Lord. To deal with our spiritual permissiveness, we must strongly confront the problem areas. We can't just be aware and say, look, I know that I have problems here. Right? Oftentimes, we talk to people and they are very self-aware They read a lot of self-psychology books, self-help books. They can verbalize to you in a very intelligent way. These are my strengths and these are all my weaknesses. But then you've known this person for years and they don't do anything about their weaknesses, right? Imagine how frustrating that person would be. Now, if we live our life that way, and we're just self-aware, but we don't do anything, we don't act upon it to fix it and correct it, there will be no improvement from the way God sees it, because that's what God would want in our life. God is helping us to be aware of how we're breaking promises the wrongs that we're doing and we feel convicted we have to be aware but then we have to do something about it we have to react and act and sometimes as nehemiah did when there is a huge offense to god there is a huge problem there's huge sins in our life that we're not following in god's way sometimes you need to respond a little bit more extremely now, I can admit to you that one of my personal weaknesses is responding extremely. Like in staff, at home, I, I just like baby steps. Maybe I'm fearful, I'm more anxious than other people. So when a huge problem hits, I think, okay, so we should go softly here, right? We should do this, and then we should do this. We should think about this person's feeling. We should think about that person's feeling. But guess what? There are times, what we see in Nehemiah is, there are times that the mistakes that we make then in our lives are so repetitive and so big that we have to take extreme measures to respond to God. That's why I can't lose weight because I like small little measures. I will eat a cupcake here. It's not a big deal, Right? i eaten half the cupcakes, and normally I would eat two. That's good. But imagine I just keep doing that. I'm not going to lose weight, right? If I'm way overweight, which don't respond to that question, then I have to take extreme measures first to get myself going in order to get to a place where I recognize and that my body recognizes, yeah, you are so unhealthy that you have to kickstart in an extreme way. Does that make sense? Sometimes you cannot take baby steps and respond to our sins and mistakes that we're making. Sometimes we have to respond a little bit in an extreme manner. And now we see Nehemiah reaction and response. He's angry. He throws all Tobiah's stuff out the temple, right? It says if you read on, actually, he curses. He verbally curses the people that are on Elisha and Tobiah's side Uh, uh, of derailing the temple and he says he even actually goes and pulls out their hair right probably it says scholars say he probably pulled at their beards now i'm not proposing here if somebody is sinning against you or you're angry at them right go and punch them or pull their beards out or hair out or do something like that but i want this to be more of an internal reflection if there are ways that you've been sinning against God, if there are ways that you've been wronging another person over and over again, and this has just snowballing and it's been huge, if you've been, now parents might like this, but youth group, if you've been wronging your friend or you've been wronging your parents over, I don't know, five, six years of your life, It might not seem like a lot for parents. It's a lot of time of disobedience, right? Maybe we need to think about what are some extreme measures that I need to pray over and act upon so that I can stop such disobedience. Parents, if there are ways that we've been hurting our kids, for example, and over and over again in the same manner, it is scarring them then you need to take extreme measures, for example, to really reflect upon what you're saying and what you're doing so that that behavior and thought process can stop. For singles, for married without children, it doesn't matter. Any issues that we have, if you see the very core of who you are and you are being really honest with evaluating yourself and you're being perceptive, You know the areas in your life that you've been falling over and over again, that this has become very cancerous. The only way to respond is perhaps like Nehemiah. So with those challenges, I want to just invite the praise team to come up. One theologian, Derek Kidner, puts it this way. As he's responding and looking at Nehemiah's explosion, an explosive response quote, Nehemiah's explosion was as characteristic as Ezra's implosion had been. Both were powerfully effective and both were to find some parallel in our Lord's encounters with evil. What he's talking about here is Nehemiah explodes in anger outwardly in his action and he's saying sometimes we need to act that way because that's how God would react when he sees us. But he says just as effective sometimes we need to extremely implode like ezra who for chapters on and on you see ezra just crying to the lord and just praying crying and this sadness and mourning why because it's a response to the very same thing of our sinfulness and being away from god whether you respond this way that way, I want to challenge each one of us. Can we take this time to really evaluate ourselves honestly and understand that it's okay if your life doesn't end in this season with the chapter 13 that says, happily ever after and everything's wrapped up nicely and you celebrated God, you thank God, your life is going well. Reality is our lives don't end that way. It continues. I hope you find not only challenge, but you find hope in how Nehemiah ends because it is real and it is raw. This is how life was and it is now and it will be. But the promise here is that God makes Nehemiah through this non-happily-ever-after ending is that I, even though you constantly make mistakes like this and you keep making mistakes and you don't keep your promise, I will always stay the same. I will always be there for you. I ask you in response to my love and grace for you. Because you're my children. That some points in your life, more so than not, that you learn how to reflect honestly within yourself. And that you can understand where God's heart is. And we can respond rightly so. So, Let's pray, church. If you can just close your eyes for a few minutes and pray with me. First, let's just pray a prayer of thanksgiving. And just say, thank you, God, that, Lord, although I constantly make mistakes in my life, and name those mistakes, that, God, you're still there for me. If you don't feel that love, if you struggle to know that God that loves you, forgives you i hope this is a challenge to dive deeper into the word of god when you are challenged to read the word of god you will see throughout the old testament and the new testament a god who continually favors us continually chases after us as he did to these israelites so let's give a prayer of thanksgiving to our lord for he is gracious and loving let us pray Let's pray, church, about this. When Nehemiah saw what was wrong, he took strong, unmistakable action. He did something. We should try our best to not give up on the promises that God wants us to make with him and with others. So if there are areas in your life that you're struggling with, if there are areas in your life that you feel like, I've made these promises and I've fallen upon it, If you're constantly hurting others and hurting yourself in any way, let's come before the Lord and ask God the courage to forgive ourselves as he did for us. We don't just love and forgive ourselves because we love ourselves and we want this just for ourselves. We do it because God already did it for us. We want to act and respond to our lives as he does with us. So let's pray and just bring up before the Lord if there are areas in your life that you need to take such strong, unmistakable action in order to do right by God, let's pray for that and courage to act upon that in this upcoming week. Let us pray.
2: Straight into the dark, and if from the course you In where I am going Lost in the shallow in this fear and far, your truth is the compass that points me back north. Jesus, my captain, my soul trusted, Lord. With the heart in the stream of death, with the pain and the sorrow.
1: Go with this word of encouragement and the hope that though we constantly make mistakes, though we keep breaking promises to you and others, Lord, that you are always there with open arms, ready to embrace us in your love and ready to teach us, convict us. Lord, we thank you for who you are in our lives. We thank you for who you are in our families and in this church, that you are unchanging, gracious, giving, loving God, may we be inspired by who you are to be able to change the very things in our life that hurt you and us. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We pray all this in the name of the Father, our God, Jesus Christ, our Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.